refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Oh, good evening. Eric, you're buzzing. Oh, thank you. An old buzzard. Morgan, good to see you, man. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Hey, so tonight we're on uh, the introduction and overview of the so-called Buddhist schools of tenets, or the tenets of the Buddhist schools. And we're in that four class three. Which class is this? <laughs> oh, this is class four. Four. Okay. And we're in that uh, wonderful situation where we have two versions of similar material. We have the introduction by Donald Lopez, and then we have the text by the Compendium Committee. <laughs> so I thought this time maybe we'll start with the Compendium Committee version. And then we'll backfill through the introduction since they're fairly similar, which means that we're in part two of the book, chapter 10, page 220, uh, 219. I love a course where you're already on page 219 after like only three classes that's pretty good <laughs> just zooming through this text overview of the buddhist schools of tenets needless to say is that a great saying Why would you say it if it's needless to say? Scholarly humor. Needless to say, the original source of Buddhist tenets is the teacher, Shakyamuni, whose dates of birth, death, and so forth were provided in chapter one. Did we do chapter one? We must have done chapter one. Oops, chapter one. Right, what is the header of, are you on uh, chapter two or a subhead? Yeah, we're in part two, Page chapter 10. 74. And the digital. 70, what is it on one, digital? 174. Oh, how did we get there? Yes. 
Magic. <laughs> to the common sight of his disciples after he came of age, he became skilled in all the sciences of the land of India, <laughs> India at that time. No, that's not right. Oh. Chapter 10, overview of the Buddhist schools of tenets. Does it not have it in the in the table of contents? I'm trying again. I, I think we, you and I must have, uh, Christopher Mance, it must have a different digital than I do. Ten. Okay. Table of contents? No. You could probably search needless because that probably only comes into the book one time. <laughs> no, I, I, no, that's what was stirring me is I'm not finding that word in where I was. So I've got it. I'm good. Thank you. Sorry for the disruption. And what's the best way to search? Table of contents? Or... Yes. I, I just didn't realize that we had yeah, sort of jumped a little, I guess. But anyway, no, it's my bad. I, I... My feeling jumpy tonight. Needless say, the original source of Buddhist tenets is the teacher, Shakyamuni, whose dates of birth, death, and so forth were provided in chapter one to the common sight of his disciples. Odd phrase. After he came of age, he became skilled in all the sciences of the land of India at, his, at that time, such as the martial arts. Sorry, manual arts. <laughs> when he was 29 years old, moved by renunciation, he went forth from the home to the homeless life, and he then practiced asceticism for six years. Finally, he went to the foot of the Bodhi tree and displayed the deed of achieving perfect and complete Buddhahood. He turned the wheel of the Dharma for the first time in Varanasi, beginning with the topic of the four truths, to his first audience, the good group of five. From that point until he displayed Excuse me a second. The deed of passing into final nirvana in the town of Kushinagari was a period of a little more than 40 years. Traditionally said to have been uh, 45 years, right? He gained enlightenment at 35 and he passed away at about 81. If I have my math right, that's about 46 years. Place at his feet. In many places in central India, he taught innumerable disciples numerous heaps of the Dharma in accordance with their individual capacities. The words that he spoke at various times at various places and to various audiences were later gathered by his followers and organized into three scriptural collections based on their topic. Thus, the scriptural collection of the Vinaya primarily teaches the topic of the training in ethics or Shila. The scriptural collection of the sutras primarily teaches the topic of the training and concentration or samadhi. The scriptural collection of the Abhidharma primarily teaches the topic of the training and wisdom or prajna. In early Buddhist texts, there is another way to organize the statements of the Buddha from the perspective of three different interests and capacities of his disciples. To disciples interested in the practice of freedom from attachment, he primarily taught practices free from attachment. This is the scriptural collection of the Shravakas. To disciples interested in the vast, 
He taught such things as the Ten Levels and the Six Perfections. This is the scriptural collection of the perfections of the Bodhisattvas. To those disciples especially interested in the profound, he primarily taught practices of desire. <laughs> so, did I read that right? Practices of desire. This is the scriptural collection of the secret Vajra vehicle. Profound and vast. Freedom profound and vast. Furthermore, the Mahayana Sutras, according to what is said in such works as the explanation of the intent sutra, it's an interesting translation of the Samdhi, the famous Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, explanation of the intention or unraveling of the intention or clarifying the intention. The Bhagavan turned the wheel of the Dharma three times in accordance with the different capacities and faculties of the disciples in the first period after his enlightenment in Varanasi. He turned the first wheel, beginning with the four truths of the noble ones, which has now become a more common way of translating the four truths. Instead of the four truths being noble, they're the, the four truths for noble ones. Um, after that, on Vulture Peak, he turned the Dharma wheel of signlessness from among the three doors of liberation, signlessness, the middle wheel, primarily teaching the perfection of wisdom, Prajnaparamita sutras. In the final period, meaning the period of his life, he taught the Dharma wheel of good differentiation at such places as Vaishali. Among the four schools of Buddhist tenets, the two Shravaka schools, Vaibhashaka and Sautrantaka, which propound the tenets of the lower vehicle, take as their primary source the first teachings. The Dharma wheel of the four truths, using it to delineate the basis, path, and fruition of their own systems. Ground, path, and fruition. As for the proponents of tenets of the highest vehicle, Mahayana, I'm sorry, Madhyamaka takes as its primary source the pronouncements of the wheel of signlessness. And Chittamatra takes as its primary source the pronouncements of the wheel of good discrimination, using them to delineate the basis, path, and fruition of their own systems. Because the words of the Buddha were set forth in accordance with the various capacities and interests of the disciples, it was not possible for all the scriptures of the Bhagavan to be taken literally in their entirety. Just as one analyzes gold by burning it, cutting it, and rubbing it, they are to be analyzed using correct reasoning and divided into provisional sutras and definitive sutras in the manner set forth by the Buddha himself. This has already been discussed in the first volume of the Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist classics. Thus the existence of so many different categorizations of the statements of the Bhagavan is due to the variety of different capacities, faculties, and interests of his disciples. When he preached the Dharma to his disciples, he did so in accordance with their different levels of acumen and different interests. The Buddha did not persistently teach the final view that was born in his own mind to those who are not suited to it because of their mental capacity. 
When the scriptures of the Buddha were organized in accordance with the faculties of his disciples, they were set forth in terms of the two vehicles from the perspective of practice, the Shravaka vehicle, Shravakayana, and the Bodhisattva, or great vehicle, Mahayana. And from the perspectives of the view, they were set forth in terms of the four schools of tenets, Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Madhyamaka. The descent into Lanka Sutra explains how the Bhagavan set forth the Dharma in a way that was suitable for the mental capacity of his disciples, just as a physician, skilled physician, analyzes each patient Tathagata, teaches sentient beings in accordance with their interests. Nagarjuna's precious garland sense says the same thing. I'll skip the quote. Oh, I actually know that this, just as a grammarian, uh, grammarians begin with reading the alphabet, so the Buddha teaches doctrines that disciples can bear. To some, he teaches doctrines for the reversal of sins. To some, for the sake of achieving merit. To some, doctrines based on duality. To some, doctrines based on non-duality. To some, the profound, frightening, to the fearful, having an essence, um, an essence of emptiness and compassion, the means of achieving enlightenment. So, doctrines for the reversal of sins, that's like the common worldly path to happiness, uh, to some for the sake of achieving merit, Uh, gathering up merit uh, is the way to uh, reverse sins. To some doctrines based on duality is the Shravakayana, the uh, idea of personal liberation. To some doctrines based on non-duality is the uh, middle turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And to some the profound, frightening to the fearful, having the essence of compassion emptiness and compassion and that's the final wheel since uh but we this is from the garjana so um, anyway it's a little unclear what he's uh ref, referring to as to some doctrines based on non-duality as it says, just as, for example, the setting text and grammar start by the alphabet, the Buddha usually initially taught disciples as much of the doctrine as their minds could bear. He did not teach them doctrines that were not appropriate for them. He taught them in stages. To some, he taught doctrines to turn them away from sin, such as killing. To some, he taught doctrines to bring about the fruition of virtue. To some, he taught doctrines, the doctrine that the self of the person is not real, but that apprehended objects and apprehending subjects are distinct substantial entities. So some he taught that the consciousness that is not based on apprehended objects and apprehending subjects being different substantial entities, that is the consciousness that is empty of apprehended and apprehender being different substantial entities is the ultimate truth. And that's a reference to the Chittamatra tradition, which is characterized in this schema of the tenant system as having presented the ultimate truth as being without the duality of apprehender and apprehended. To some of the sharpest faculties, he taught the profound mode of being that no phenomena are truly established. Doctrines that have an essence of emptiness, creating fear in those who conceive things to be true and of great compassion. The Madhyamaka. Furthermore, the Buddha did not teach his disciples 
The most profound topics from the start, he taught them progressively from the quartz level to the subtle. Aryadeva says, at the beginning he turns them away from what is not meritorious, in the middle from the self, and later he turns them away from all views. One who knows this is a wise dude. Thus, at the beginning, he turns them away from coarse misdeeds of body, speech, and mind that create non-meritorious karma. Then he refutes the object of the 20 views of the perishable collection and turns them away from the coarse apprehension of self. In the end, having taught them that no phenomena are truly established, he teaches the necessity of turning away from all views of permanence and annihilation. The two extremes. In the uh, Mahavipasana, explains how long the Buddha stayed in various places when he turned, when turning these various wheels of the Dharma. The sage, the supreme being, lived for one year each at the place of the turning of the wheel of Dharma, is one, Vaishali is two, Makalan is three, and the abode of the gods is four, Shushamara is five, Shushamara hill. Kus, uh, Kaushambi is six, Atavi is seven, Chaityagiri is eight, Vinavana is nine, Shaka, uh, Saketu is ten, and in the city of Kapalavastu is eleven. He spent two years in um, Jawalini Cave, that's thirteen, four years in Bashai Jayavana, that's uh, what was that, 15? <laughs> and uh, five years in the city of Rajagriha is 20, six years practicing austerities is 26, 23 years in Shravasti is 49, and uh, 29 years in the palace. Altogether, supposedly totaling 80, but it comes out to be like 76 or something, right? Did anybody do the math? Anyway, thus regarding the place of the Bhagavan state, it's well known that he taught the excellent Dharma to many disciples residing one year in each, one year each at the place of the turning of the wheel of Dharma, repeating this quote. So I'll skip that. Uh, when his body was about to pass. Came out to 80. Cool. When his body was about to pass into Nirvana, the Bhagavan entrusted the Dharma to the elder, Mahakashipa. The noble Mahakashipa trust, entrusted it to Ananda, who entrusted it to Shanavasan, who entrusted it to Upagupta, sort of like a hot potato, man. They're just like passing it off one after another. Here, you take it, you take it, no, you take it. Who entrusted it to Dhridika, who entrusted it to Krishna. I love that one, have like a Buddhist guy named Krishna be the holder of the doctrine. What exactly do they mean by entrusted here? Because I thought that there was the sense that he did not like name a successor. He didn't, but there was a head of the Sangha as a community. Oh, okay. It, it says entrusted the Dharma. It doesn't say leader of the Sangha, but it basically you think that's the same concept? Well, it's a bit, it's a controversial issue of like uh, uh, this whole idea of did he have any successor? And did he, you know, make this statement of like. Uh, I want the Sangha to, to lead itself. And then this idea, which is uh, very, uh, becomes 
as history goes on, it becomes more and more popular, this idea of there having been these seven, what are often called patriarchs of the Dharma, who are described as the leaders of the Sangha. And uh, certain schools of Buddhism, like Zen, uh, are very much into this. If you look at Zen, they tr they trace the uh, patriarchs as the first seven, and then they add a whole bunch of others, ending with Bodhidharma, who brought it to China. And so they that's how they trace their tradition back to the Buddha, saying that these are the successors to the Buddha, as if uh, sort of Dharma heir type things. Uh, you rarely see this in the in the Tibetan tradition, uh, but in uh, uh, in the Vinaya, this is recounted, uh, and they give little life stories of each of them. Um, and uh, Tartang Tulku, in his series uh, Crystal Mirrors, repeats this scheme as well. So, sort of interesting uh, issue. They are renowned as the seven generations of the teaching. So here it's a sort of not not uh, making a uh, dharma air particularly out of them, but uh, sort of seven generations, interestingly. Um, and and the, the individuals is sort of odd because uh, after an Ananda, I thought it was his son. In some versions, it's his son, Rahula Bhadra. Rahula is the uh, holder. Anyway, as the chapter on the fine points of the Vinaya says, the Bhagavad passed into Nirvana, having trusted the teaching to the Venerable Mahakashipa. Mahakashipa was missed the, the Buddha's Parinirvana, by the way. He was late. <laughs> he heard about it late, and he came rushing to the scene. And uh, they were trying to burn the Buddha's body, as the story goes. It was, uh, his body had been placed on the funeral pyre and everything was all set. And they kept trying to light fire to the funeral pyre. And he, with his magical powers, uh, uh, prevented them the fire from starting until he got there. And then when he got there, it immediately blazed. The fire blazed forth. The Venerable Mahakashyapa entrusted it to the abbot, the abbot having entrusted the teaching to me, Shanavasan passed into Nirvana. The abbot, interesting, so it's Ananda or the abbot's son. I too will pass into Nirvana. Now you are to protect the teaching and everything that was spoken by the Bhagavan carefully. Then Venerable Shanavasan, having delighted both the patrons and the practitioners of celibate, igniting, burning, causing rain and causing lightning, Passed completely into their nirvana with no remainder of the aggregates. The elder Upagupta entrusted the teaching to the Venerable Duritaka. Venerable Duritaka, having fulfilled the needs of the teaching, entrusted it to Krishna and so forth. Mahasudarshan. When they say no remainder of the aggregates, they're not talking about like at the level of rainbow body sort of dissolution. Are, are they just talking about? The notion no, of nirvana talking. with no remainder means when you leave your body. Yes, nirvana without remainder, no more, no more of anything. Yeah. So the last line, that's the great elephants, the the great beings, the the uh, the great 
white elephant was considered to be the greatest of all beings and so they can they uh, use that as an epithet of the buddha and others of uh, presumably these seven as we see these seven uh, patriarchs were called elephants great elephants after the buddha passed into nirvana followers of the buddha such as mahakashiva gathered to finalize the collection of dogshan that he that the Buddha had set forth to various disciples in different places described above. In historical works, this is renowned as the first stage of the gathering of the word. It took place in the cave of great bliss at Rajagriha during the, the rains retreat of the year. The Buddha passed into Nirvana with King Ajatashatru, serving as the patron at the request of the great elder Mahakashipa. The elder Mahakashipa himself recited the Abhidharma Pitaka. So this is, you know, very much the traditional story. The Arhat Upali recited the Vinaya Pitaka, and the Arhat Ananda recited the Sutra Pitaka. They added introductions at the beginning, such as, thus did I hear at one time in the middle, they provided transitions between sections. And at the end, they added a conclusion about how the audience had gathered and their praise of what the Bhagavan had spoken. They gathered all the words of the Buddha into three scriptural collections based on their topics and finalized their contents by memory, by the way, without writing anything down. <laughs> then... 110 years after the Bhagavan had passed in Nirvana with King Ashoka serving as the patron, 700 arhats such as the arhat Yasha gathered in Vaishali and criticized 10 inappropriate deeds of the monks of Vaishali. So they all gathered in Vaishali to criticize the, the Buddhists in Vaishali. <laughs> must have been a little bit of an intense situation. This is known as the second gathering of the word that 116 years after the Bhagavan went to peace in the city of Kusumapura, four elders recited individual scriptures. This is an odd one that I hadn't heard before. In Sanskrit, Upper Bumps of Prakrit and Paishachi. Paishachi language is the language of the Paishachi, is little demon beings. Because their students could not agree, they split into four main sects. This is one of the many attempts to explain the derivation of the different schools, that initially there was a split into four schools. And uh, there, this version, as you can see, is, is uh, sort of uh, crediting the, or uh, um, saying that the reason that the Sangha split was that these teachers spoke in different languages. And so, they attracted different followers and so forth. Um, they split into four main sects and split further into 18 smaller sects and debated with each other. When they discovered and read the Dream Omen Sutra of King Krikken. Okay, so this is a, a, a sutra that, re, that the Buddha recounts where um, this king has a... Uh, where at the, at the time of the Buddha, some king comes to him and says, I had this terrible dream of uh, this beautiful, or I had this odd dream of this beautiful white sheet um, being uh, torn by wise men into 18 different pieces. And the Buddha says, oh, this is a very helpful dream. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. This is a... Uh, 
prophecy that uh, at some point in the future, the Sangha will be split into 18 different pieces, but each one of them will retain the original purity of my teachings, and none of them will be, um, none of them should be considered to be not authentic. So they use this as the way of saying that all 18 schools were authentic, they were just different as opposed to saying that some were good and some were bad. The odd thing about this is that when they when they discovered and read the Dream Omen Sutra, it's sort of like, okay, that was in the Tripitaka, that's in the Sutra Pitaka. What do you mean when they discovered and read it? Hadn't they like already read the whole thing before? <laughs> Anyway, well, the they, circumstance, it, it might be one of those things where um, when the circumstance arose, oh, then it takes different meaning. Yeah. Somebody sort of said, hey, wait a minute. I remember this thing about 18. Let's go back and reread that thing. Maybe that will answer our problem here. Yeah. And so they did that. You know, Naga's involved in this discovery, right? <laughs> Not that we know. As Cynthia described, they did that. And we're all amazed to, when they reread that sutra to realize that that was a prophecy of this very situation. And they all agreed that all 18 sects were included in the single teaching of the Buddha. This is known as the third gathering of the word. There are also other ways of explaining this third gathering of, of the word. Now, if I read this right, this was only two years no, six years after the second one, which doesn't make sense. That's no, no other accounts does that. It's usually they were 100 years apart, give or take. Anyway, that's these uh, that's three stages of gathering the word are primarily from the perspective of the scriptural collection of the common vehicle, the Shravaka Yana. The primary gatherers of the Mahayana scriptures are the Bodhisattva, Bodhisattvas, Samantabhadra, Manjushri, Guyapati, otherwise known as Vajrapani, and Maitreya. The gatherers of the Tantras are Vajrapani and the Dakinis. Ah, those Dakinis. However, the manner and the time of the gathering of the Tantras is set forth differently than that of the Sutras. In the ancient accounts from the past, there are different descriptions of such things as how the divisions of the Buddhist systems of tenets came about, whether initially there were one, two, three, or four Shravaka sects, and how the sects came to be subdivided into 18 from among these. A brief one will be provided below in the chapter explaining the tenets of the Vaibhashika. In the system connected to the Mahayana scriptures, it is said that the Buddhist schools of tenets are definitely four. This does not appear explicitly in the scriptures of the Sutra category, but appears clearly in the Buddhist Tantras and in the treatises, Shastras, uh, written by the great masters, Buddhist masters. For example, the Bodhisattva Vajra Garbha's commentary on the condensation of the Hevaja Tantra says, then understanding the system of Vipashika and that, then that of Satrantaka from the doctrines of Vijnanavada, and one then must understand um, Madhyamaka, the intention of the perfection of wisdom. 
So in this uh, commentary on the, on the Hevajra Tantra, this scheme appears. Same text also says, Shravakyana, Pratika, Buddhiyana, and here the Mahayana is the third. For the Buddhists, the fourth vehicle and the fifth school were not was not the intention of the sage. This is saying that among the proponents of Buddhist tenets, there are none that are not included among the four. And that among the Buddhist vehicles, there is no vehicle outside of the three. In the same way, Majagosha Narendra Kirti's brief explanation, explication of the assertions of her own view says, they became Vaibhashaga, Satrantag, Yogacara, Madhyamaka. This is saying that the school of Buddhist tenets are counted as four. The four schools of tenets are included in the schools of tenets of the greater and lesser vehicles. Vaibhashaga, Satrantag, or Shravakayana schools, Chittamatra, Madhyamaka, Mahayana schools. Because the first two propound their tenets based on the Shravaka scriptural collection, they're called the Shravaka proponents. Because the Madhyamaka and Chittamatra proposed their, propound their tenets based on the vast sutras of the Mahayana, uh, because they propound the modes of explanation unique to the Mahayana that are presented in these sutras, they're called proponents of Mahayana tenets. One might ask, from what perspective are the vehicles divided into two? the vehicles of the Shravaka and Pratyeka Buddhas and the vehicle of the Bodhisattvas. And the school of tenets into four, Nagarjuna's precious girl says, because the Bodhisattva's aspirations, deeds, and dedications are not explained in the Shravaka vehicle, how could one become a Bodhisattva through it? And, uh, that was the sort of odd phrasing. I guess they're asking, why is there Mahayana? And uh, somebody named something that's hard to pronounce. His text was called Praise of the Exalted, said, logicians assert that things are established independently. You Lord of language have said well that nothing is independent. Udbhata Siddhaswaman. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> Imagine that as a little kid. They say that the differences between the vehicles are, were made on the basis of method. However, the differences between schools of tenants must be made primarily on the basis of views. Oh, that's the distinction being made. It's like, what's how are the yanas differentiated versus how are the tenant schools differentiated based on um, method? Is the basis for dividing up the yanas and the, the different views for the tenets. Thus, the differences between the schools are made based on views and the individual tenets related primarily to base, pass, and fruit. And they assert that all suffering is created by ignorance. Those who seek to eradicate it completely from the perspective of determining the selflessness of persons should be classified as the two Shravaka schools, those who seek to do so primarily from the perspective of determining the selflessness of phenomena, should be classified as the two Mahayana schools. It is said that compared to the lower schools of tenets, the way that the higher schools explain the meaning of selflessness is better, more profound. However, it is said that the difference between the great and small vehicles should be made primarily from the perspective of method, that is, whether they teach bodhicitta and great compassion i.e. or not. And uh, let's see. So 
So that was the brief introduction. So let's look at uh, Lopez's version of this, which is back on page 45, and it's in the introduction. And in the introduction, there's a section called General Explanation of the Tenets of the Buddhists, and it comes right after the Lokaya test. Have you page turners located the place? Page 45. Very good. Hi. Christopher. I'm almost there. I, I, almost, I, almost. I had Morgan, Morgan Stone. Here we go, got it. Morgan Stone, you got it? What's the title of the section, or is it is not a specific section? It's it is. It's in what's called the introduction, and it's called the general explanation of the tenets of the Buddhists. Are you in EPUBs? It's seventy four, according to mine. Yeah, no, no. All right, I'll find it. <laughs> so the in the introduction by Donald Lopez. General explanation of the tenets of the tenets, rather, of the Buddhists. The volume now turns to Buddhism with substantial chapters on the four schools. These are preceded by a brief history of Buddhism, the origin of the Buddhist schools presented from a traditional point of view, which we just went through. It begins with a brief bag of the Buddha explaining that divided his teachings topically into three categories. Very famous Tripitaka, corresponding to the three trainings the three higher trainings of Sheila, Samadhi, and Prajna. And uh, I'll skip the enumeration of those. Different Buddhist schools and traditions have different canons, collections of teachings and different views as to what is to be considered the word of the Buddha. All Buddhist schools accept some version of the Tripitaka with the Mahayana school also accepting the Mahayana sutras and the adherents of Buddhist Tantra also accepting the Tantras in the Tibetan tradition. All these works are considered word of the Buddha, Buddha word. Buddha Vachana set forth by him based on the needs and capacities of the disciples. And the text says, to disciples interested in the practice of freedom from attachment, he taught practices free from attachment. That's the Shravakas. So he repeats that interesting phrase. Skipping that, next paragraph, Shravaka literally meaning hearer, but often translated as disciple, refers to the followers of so-called Hinayana, which some scholars refer to as the mainstream schools, those schools that generally do not accept the Mahayana Sutras as the word of the Buddha from the Mahayana perspective. Those sutras are his teaching, and they regard his teaching, such as the Four Truths and Eight Paths, as intended for those who seek primarily to attend, uh, sorry, to end, rather, attachment to the world, to others interested in the vast. That is a bodhisattva's compassionate vow to free all beings in the universe from suffering. He taught the Mahayana Sutras, which sets forth such topics as the six perfections and the ten levels of the bodhisattva's long path to Buddhahood. To disciples interested in the profound, the ultimate nature of reality, taught the tantras referred to here as the secret mantra Vajrayana with its practices of desire, a reference to tantras, sexual elements, and the transmission of negative, transmutation rather, of negative emotions onto the path. 
the Mahayana Sutras present their own version of what the Buddha taught and when he taught it. Perhaps the most influential of these appears in a sutra called Explanation of the Intention Sutra. So there's two sutras that give in the that in the sutra explain the different uh, phases or uh, levels of teaching of the Buddha, and this is one of the two, the explanation of the intention sutra of Samdhi Nirmochana in Sanskrit, in which the Buddha explains his intention in teaching different things to different audiences. The text describes three different sets of teachings or turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, three different places, beginning with the traditional teaching of the four truths at Deer Park at Sarnath, shortly after his enlightenment, later on Vulture Peak, he taught perfection of wisdom sutras which set forth the doctrine of emptiness that would become the foundation for the Madhyamaka school. Finally, advisedly taught what is called the wheel of good differentiation, specifying what does and does not exist and how things exist, although not specified in the sutras, commentators generally identify its teachings with the Chittamacha school, as the chapter notes. As the sutra and others makes clear, this sutra and others, the Buddha taught different things to different people based on their capacity. Not everything he taught that he taught was his final view. It is therefore necessary to organize his teachings based on those capacities. Here we're told that when we consider the motivations of his disciples and the practices that they follow to reach their desired goal, there are two major categories, Shravaka, so-called Hinayana, including the, which would also include Pratyeka Buddhas, which leads to the Nirvana of an Arhat and the Bodhisattva vehicle, the Mahayana, which leads to Buddhahood. But the Buddha talk can also be organized based on philosophical schools, with the various schools regarded as the Buddha's adaptation of his teachings in accord to accord with the philosophical acumen of his disciples from the Tibetan perspective. These are organized in a hierarchy, beginning with Vaishabhasha, going to culminate in Madhyamaka. This is obviously a Madhyamaka description, one to which adherents of the three other schools would not subscribe. <laughs> The chapter continues with a number of passages that describe the Buddha's pedagogical approach. After briefly listing the various places where the Buddha lived, the chapter turns to the passage into Nirvana, the gathering of monks that occurs shortly after his death is renowned as first council with the term council barred from Christian term for the various synods of the church fathers, the Sanskrit Sangiti, literally meaning singing or chanting together. Is the term that was used by the Buddhists for these gatherings, the singings. Let's get together and have a have a singing, uh, a, a chanting. There are many accounts of this all important gathering. According to some, only the Vinayan Sutra collections were recited. According to others, Abhidharma was also recited. The account here follows the latter. This is followed by a brief description of the second council and the third council, after which the monks in attendance split into eighteen schools, noted above. From the Tibetan perspective, both the Mahayana Sutras and Tantras are the word are the word of the Buddha. Hence the chapter alludes briefly to how they were gathered for the for the Mahayana, sorry, for the mainstream tradition. So he's calling the Hinayana the mainstream tradition. It's an interesting way of looking at it. The evolution and organization of the 18 schools is of particular importance. This is discussed in some detail in the chapter on Vaibhashika. The current chapter ends with a discussion of the fourfold division that provides the structure for the Buddhism section of this volume. Listing the four, after describing the various criteria by which the schools are divided, the chapter concludes by saying those who seek to eradicate ignorance completely 
from the perspective of determining the selflessness of persons should be classified as Vaibhashaka and Sautrantika, the two Shravaka schools, those who seek to do so primarily from the perspective of determining the selflessness of phenomena or the Mahayana. Okay, now we go into the views of the four schools, starting with the Vaibhashikas. And so um, we have a number of little overviews of these. Uh, so that I don't drive you crazy, we'll continue here. Let's see, as noted above, the Vaibhashika school is so named because of its reliance on a text called the Great Exegesis of the Abhidharma, the Mahavibhasha. Excuse me. Making it the school among the four Buddhist schools presented here that is the most devoted to the vast Abhidharma tradition. This chapter, therefore, provides a summary and discussion of many of the main topics discussed in the Abhidharma literature, especially those dealing with ontology and epistemology, with much of the chapter devoted to the topic of causation. Each of the chapters in the Buddhist, Buddhist section begins with a discussion of how the school arose. In most cases, this section is relatively succinct. Here it encompasses a fifth of the chapter because it discusses the complicated topic of the 18 schools, the 18 schools of the mainstream or non-Mahayana tradition have been the subject of much scholarship seeking to date and organize the schools, identifying the earliest schools and then determining which branched off from which many charts have been produced. In an attempt to represent this, it is a complicated process for a variety of reasons, including the fact that there are several accounts and they don't always agree, believe it or not. Although the number 18 is repeated often, there are differences about which schools constitute the 18 and what remains the most thoroughly studied, sorry, the most thorough study of the topic. Andre Barrow's, Barrow's Buddhist Schools of the Small Vehicle, first published in French in 1955, 34 schools. 34, not 18, 34 discussed. In this chapter, the 18 are presented as they appear in three different versions in Bhavavaveka's Blaze of Reasoning with long passages cited verbatim from this text. Much of the discussion is about the sequence in which the schools appear in their affiliations, but it also provides from some brief descriptions of their respective positions on a range of issues. For example, providing a glimpse into the finances of a Buddhist monastery. We learn that according to the Mahishasaka, offerings to the Sangha bring about great karmic effects, while those to the Buddha do not. Yet according to the Dharma Guptaka, offerings to the Buddha bring about great effects, yet those to the Sangha do not. There are many fascinating doctrinal points mentioned in passing in this section. After citing Bhavaveka's discussion, a number of other lists are provided, followed by an explanation of the etymologies of the names of the school. At the end of this section, we learn that the affiliation of the Vaibhashika school, the subject of the chapter among the 18, is not clear, but it seems to be with the Sarvastivada. What he's saying is that when you look at the list of the 18 schools, none of them are the word Vaibhashika. And so Vaibhashika is like a later term that's applied to uh, what what he what Donald Lopez is saying. Basically, it's applied to the Sarvastivada. It's like a, uh, a later evolution of the Sarvastivada, the name of that school, which means those who say that everything exists, which is ostensibly an odd thing for a Buddhist philosopher to say. <laughs> In this case, everything refers to the past, present, and future. 
This section ends with a discussion of the major Vaibhashika centers in India drawn from the travel journal of Zhuangzong, which was translated into Tibetan by the Mongolian monk Kung Konbo Gyap during the 18th century. The chapter turns next to a discussion of the main texts of the school. Here we find a useful survey of the celebrated seven books of the Abhidharma, their authors, and the sequence of their composition before turning to the great exegesis that gives the Vaibhasha school its name, a work that is intended as commentary on one of the seven books, The Establishment of Knowledge, Nishnana Prashtana, by Katyana Yiputra. Katyayana Putra. This section also discusses Vasubandhu's treasury of knowledge. Uh, Abhidharma, sorry. It closes with a list of the seven works on Abhidharma of the Theravada school, mentioning as well Anuruddha's compendium of Abhidharma and Buddhaghosha's renowned path of purification or Visuddhi Maga. So the nuance that he doesn't explain here is that the seven books of the Abhidharma of the uh, Vaibhashikas are attributed to the Buddha. And the names of the texts are different from the seven texts in the Theravadan tradition, the Theravada school. And the Theravada school is uh, an offshoot of the Staviravada school, which is an offshoot of the Sarvastavada school. And also, you won't easily find Theravada in the 18 schools, um, interestingly. But uh, in the Theravada school, the seven Abhidharma texts are said to have been composed by the great Arhats and not by the Buddha. Uh, and the reconciling explanation is that, well, the great Arhats basically just compiled and packaged the teachings of the Buddha on those topics. And they acted as the compilation committee so to speak, of those texts. Uh, but they are a different set of texts with different names. Uh, the, the content are very similar, though, between the two versions. And then we see this text, Anuruddha's Compendium of Abhidharma. And this is what currently is one of the most famous uh, texts around these days on Abhidharma. Like if you Google on a... Uh, for uh, Abhidharma books, maybe on uh, Amazon or other places like that. This is one of the uh, more more traditional scholarly works that comes up, primarily because it is, has been uh, commented on and translated and commented on extensively by a gentleman named Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a sort of mag magical emanation of a translator and that he's uh, translated a huge amount of the uh, scriptures of the so-called mainstream tradition into English in a very high quality. And then there's Buddha Ghosh's uh, Path of Purification, which I'm sure you're all familiar with and is sort of the uh, sort of hitting on a Bible these days. Its clarity is unparalleled and its uh, completeness is uh, quite astounding. It's also very long. The remainder of the chapter is the most important, so this, which is why Anarudas is <laughs> sometimes preferred because it's about a quarter, well, a third of the size, maybe. The remainder of the chapter is the most important, setting down in some detail the tenets of the Vaibhashika school, tenets that are important in their own right, but also because they provide so many of the foundational categories and terminologies of Buddhist philosophy, as well as so many of the doctrines that the other Buddhist schools would seek to refute. 
set forth in this chapter of the five aggregates, the 12 sources, the 18 constituents, the six minds, and the 46 mental factors that are central to Buddhist epistemology. We also find what are called the five foundations of objects of knowledge, forms, minds, phenomena arisen from minds, known more commonly as mental factors, compositional factors, known more commonly as non-associated formations, and, oh, sorry, non-compositional factors not associated with minds or the non-associated formations, and the unconditioned. So those are the five bases that we've gone through when, when we went through the compendium, uh, sorry, the first course in this series, based on the first volume of this series, and we looked at the schema from the uh, various ways of organizing the elements of reality, <clears throat> or the 75 or 100 dharmas, we looked at this, this way of the five bases of phenomena. Like the Hindu and China schools considered above, the Buddhists also had their theory of everything. We learned by Mashika's straightforward definition of the two truths, conventional and ultimate. If something can be broken into parts with the body or the mind, it's a conventional truth. Why do they say by the body or the mind? If something can be broken into parts by the body, that's pretty clear. You break up a chair when you get really mad at your roommate and you break the chair over his back falls into pieces. That's like pretty graphic and, and very common actually these days. But what does it mean when we break something up with our mind? It's like we break up with our mind? Are we having an affair with our mind and then we break up with our mind? What do you think, Cynthia? Logically, um, figure out parts. What would what, what it mean if we break up with our mind? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear that. Oh, what what sort of things would we break up with our mind? Well, is this the notion of like particles, imaginary? I mean, the idea of the, all these uh, particles that make up things. Well, particles that make up things, those things that are made up with particles, are broken up by our body into their parts. Well, then, are we talking about the notion of time and mental moments? Yeah, we're talking about the, the mental words. Broken into parts of the body or the mind, yeah. So, non-material things are broken up by the mind. Into, uh, in mind I'm not sure I entirely understand that because it seems to me that while you're right that if we break chairs over people's heads, we're doing it with the body, but when we're just talking about even material things being broken into imaginary parts, that still seems like it's being done by the mind. But they, they don't actually get broken up when we do it with our mind. But when we, when we, analyze, when we analyze our, uh, our mental experience, we then break it up into into time periods and so forth. That's how they characterize this. It's a little bit clunky. But basically they're saying things that can be broken up by body or, or material things, things that, can, that are not material, i.e. minds and mental factors, mental, mental states. It's a good way to characterize that. Like the mental state of a 
of a learner can be broken up by the mind into its different categories is what they're saying here um, and so these these uh, things that can be broken up in that way are um, conventional truths so like the state of mind of somebody who's uh, in a state of panic the state of mind of somebody who's in a state of composure or the state of mind of somebody who's in a state of uh, um, obsession with some object those can be broken up into different aspects of mind which type of consciousness is being used what are the mental factors that are engaged and so on so those are conventional so uh, whereas the uh, let's see the next sentence says uh, if it cannot it is an ultimate truth so uh, you know the mental factors cannot be broken down further according to this system so those are ultimate in other words the dharmas the so-called dharmas are ultimate and the conglomerations of dharmas are not ultimate and conglomerations is an easier concept in the material world uh, but they use the same sort of concept in the non-material world of the mind to talk about the conglomeration of uh, mental factors is known as a mental state if that makes any sense so basically if you can break something down into its parts whether those are material or psychic parts then it's conventional and if you can't then it's ultimate if, uh, let's see this definition of ultimate truth means that the Vaibhashikas asserts the existence of physically partless particles and temporally partless moments of consciousness. A position that other schools would go wild over, <laughs> have a field day about. Uh, this chapter also includes a discussion of the problematic Vatsibhutriya school one of the 18 who has noted above um, noted earlier argued in a religion known for its claim of no self i.e the buddhist religion that they were supposedly part of that there exists an inexpressible person can, so what is this inexpressible person i told you it was inexpressible how can i say anything about it among the many topics considered in this chapter, one is particularly important for buddhist philosophy and for the indian philosophy more generally causation as we've seen, the various non-Buddhist schools all have all tried to account for creation and change with Sankhya. Speaking of a primary nature, other schools speaking of a creator, God, and Lokayatas denying the existence of all but the most obvious and organic causation. As a school that believes in rebirth and does not believe in a primary nature, creator, God, causation was a consequential concern for Buddhist thinkers in general in Buddhist philosophical works, all of which stress the impermanence of conditioned things. A particular impermanent phenomena passes through three phases, production, abiding, and disintegration, or sometimes, as in the case of Vaibhashika, production, abiding, aging, and disintegration, force four phases that phenomena go through how and why does this happen if everything has a cause how do these stages happen for vipashika very much in keeping with many of the indian schools can considered above this occurs as a result of an external factor so there's a, some 
external factor that causes the arising of a phenomena, and then some external factor causes the abiding of that phenomena and the aging of it and the disintegration of that phenomena. It's all caused, are all caused by ex factors external to that phenomena. Um, pretty much what I said, if something possessed, produced through the agency, the principle of production abides through the agency of the principle of abiding. It's a lot of principles. It ages through the agency of the principle of aging, and it disintegrates through the aging of the principle of disintegration. Imagine if you get in trouble in school, there's four different principles you got to go to. These four occur in sequence over time. This position, sensible as it might seem, would be rejected by other schools. The Sautrantika, the second of the Hinayana Shravaka schools presented here is Sautrantika, the followers of the sutras. One might assume that all Buddhists are followers of the sutras or discourses of the Buddha. However, as mentioned above, the sense indicated here is that this school does not rely on words like the seven books of the Abhidharma or the great exegesis for its tenets, but on the sutra of the Buddha. I said words, I meant, I should have said works literature. Thus, they would reject the account of the first council in which it stated that monk Mahashakashaba recited the Abhidharma that he had heard from the Buddha. They do not hold the, the Abhidharma to be a, a, actually spoken by the Buddha. For the Sautrantika, the texts that constitute the Abhidharma Pitaka are not the word of the Buddha, but were composed by Arhats, or according to some in, unenlightened monks who had the same names as the well-known Arhats. <laughs> Those texts are therefore not reliable or, in the language of Buddhism, of definitive meaning. As clear as this distinction is, the origins of the school are unclear with some authors associated with the Darshantika, uh, users of examples. Uh, scholar Kumaralata. However, um, there is some debate whether Darshtantika and Sautrantika are two names for the same school, as most Tibetan presentations hold. The name appears in a text composed by the early 4th century scholar Sri Lata. <laughs> They're all into lattes. Sorry, Chris. Uh, entitled Explanation of Sautrantika, Sautrantika Vibhasha. Sri Lata was the teacher of Vasubandhu. It's a, a lofty position. The author of the most famous Sautrantika text, Treasure of Abhidharma, as noted above in this text, he presents the Vibhashika positions in the verse and refutes them in his commentary. Another important Sautrantika text is Harry Varman's treatise establishing the truths, Satya Siddhi Shastra. The two greatest figures in the history of Buddhist logic, Dignam and Dharmakirti, are also identified with Sautrantika, although important elements of their works are clearly associated with Chitamatra. Although, as will be discussed below, there are important innovations in their theory of perception, Sautrantika gives particular importance to the objects of the sense consciousnesses, exalting them to the level of ultimate truths, which they define simply as phenomena capable of performing a function. Thus, contrary to common assumptions about Buddhist philosophy for Sautrantika, something as ordinary as a clay pot is an ultimate truth. And this clarifies something that we wondered about uh, about a year ago when we went through the first of these courses on the first volume of these, of like, uh, 
but, you know, why did they keep using a, the clay pot as an example of a phenomena when uh, it's it can be broken down and must be like a relative phenomena? But for Savitrantika, it's ultimate because it can perform a function, the function of holding liquid or material or whatever. And so they have this very simple definition of the ultimate is that capable of performing a function. And so the the in in the morass of all this information of names and histories and categories and so forth, one of the most important things is to trace the the uh, evolution of the idea of what uh, relative and ultimate are. As we know, the two truths is the fundamental principle and uh, a skillful means and a way of uh, uh, under the 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 sort of development of our understanding of that scheme is key is a key part of the development of our progress on the path towards understanding the nature of reality and we see an almost complete reversal between the vibhashikas who say the ultimate is that which can't be broken down like partless particles things that can do not perform a function you can't see them you can't perceive them you can't find them they're like mythical mythological phenomena and you know uh, uh smallest moments of mind of uh, in time sequence again unfindable and then the the sotrotikos it's like uh, just about a 180 degree turn it's like those things are imaginary, you know, they're, they're, it's impossible to have a partless particle. You could never conglomerate anything if the, if the particles were partless. And so they go like the 180 degrees the other way and say, it's just anything that performs a function, you know, anything that uh, has that ability to make something happen, or which ranges from being observable to causing the next moment of its own continuum as well as like causing some other phenomena to do x y or z those are ultimate phenomena and anything not able to perform a function such as concepts non-associated formations are not ultimate phenomena or relative phenomena so you know it's Tracing that progression is is really fascinating. We'll see. He'll we're going to go through the other schools. You know, see what they do with this one major topic is really key. Um, for satrantic objects of thought are conventional. Did I skip about? Let's see. For yeah. Um, for Sautrantika, something as ordinary as a clay pot is an ultimate truth is because it can perform a function, because each pot is unique, because it exists independent of language, which which is uh, often described by this term. Um, uh, phenomena are different from the names and the terms that we apply to them. We've seen that clunky phrase before, right? And so we see Donna Lopez um, describe the meaning of that term phenomena that uh, exists independent of our language about them which is i think is neat that he does this here and there he like simplifies these 
ideas that are otherwise described in a sort of clunky way as being phenomena that are independent of words and names or something like that. And because it has the ability to serve the object of the consciousness that perceives it. Uh, let's see, it performs a function that's unique, it exists independent of language, has the ability to serve as, sorry, as the object. It's observable, as I said earlier. Such things are therefore called specifically characterized. So when we're talking about a clay pot or something like that in this case, here we're talking about a specific clay pot then? <laughs> Not the Helpful. Type. Yep, very helpful. Not the idea of a clay pot. In all of these ways, things that can perform functions and are the objects of the five sense consciousness are different from the objects of thought. For Shravaka, like the, the idea of a pot, objects of thought are conventional truths, lacking the vivid vitality of the object of the senses. These objects of thought are, gener are described as generally characterized. Uh, Samanya Lakshana versus Swa Lakshana. It is in this context that the important topic of, topic of exclusion Apoha is introduced where it is observed that a specifically characterized pot, for example, is not what a thought perceives. Um, instead, a thought perceives a generic image of a pot formed through the process of exclusion, that is, by eliminating everything that does not fit our personal definition of what is a pot. This generic image, the product of a negative process, is in fact permanent in the Buddhist sense that it doesn't change in every moment. It doesn't have to last more than two moments, but if it lasts more than more than one moment, it's permanent. This is only a brief summary, summary rather, suffering. It's a brief suffering of an important topic discussed at length in this chapter. Satrajika also differs significantly from Vaibhashikas in what they wear. No, I'm sorry, in causation. As noted above, Vaibhashikas posit four principles that bring about production, aging, uh, abiding aging, disintegration over four moments in their sequence. That's, that's sort of sensible, right? There's a progression, like a chronological progression of those different aspects of the of a phenomenon that it goes through. Uh, arising, abiding, aging, and disintegration first. So Toronto goes on the other hand, who we take as the most logical school, sort of the you know, sort of like uh, you know, just sort of simple down-to-earth logic. This contradicts the Buddhist dictum that everything has is produced is momentary. They argue that all impermanent things are produced, abide, and cease in each moment. <laughs> so there's not a sequence of moments. So the, the fact that the other scheme says, well, things abide for a moment is uh, breaking the law that all phenomena are impermanent. And uh, so the production, abiding, and cessation are in fact three names for the same moment of a given phenomena. <laughs> Why don't they, I mean, at least you would think they would abandon the notion of abiding if they're talking about momentariness. That, that, that's directly contradictory. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
you know, uh, keep in mind your homework project for the for the course is developed your own system of tenants, and that could be your tenant. One of your tenants is you know just get rid of abiding, and you have a rising immediately going to uh, aging and disintegrating or something like that, right? Uh, let's see. Um, uh, it's coming into existence as its production is lasting for a single moment as it's abiding, it, which is odd for them to say. And the fact uh, that it will not last more than a moment is its cessation. This is what they refer to as subtle impermanence. They reject not only the fourfold sequence, but in particular the Vibhashic assertion that production, abiding, aging, and disintegration are principles that act on impermanent things. So there's the, their interpretation of the Vibhashika's explanation of this situation of causation is that there's the principle of arising that acts upon a phenomena such as a fire. A fire is acted uh, is caused by the principle of arising to appear, and so forth. Um, and they say that that adds like an unnecessary, and uh, not only unnecessary, but inexplicable complexity, that there's these principles that act upon impermanent things, and principles are not um, specifically characterized phenomena. They are generally characterized as phenomena. So how can a principle have any impact on a real thing? You know, principles are ideas. Although Sautrantika's Sautrantika argues that it is these constantly disintegrating things that are the ultimate truths. It makes a number of important contributions to epistemology in addition to exclusion theory, two of which can be mentioned here. Interesting the way he phrases this, he's sort of like saying, although they have this weird idea. It's like saying they're stupid but not totally stupid or whatever, you know. Right, right. And why are they stupid? You know, although they argue that constantly disintegrating things are ultimate truths, you know, whereas like Vipashikas, at least they say that, you know, it abides for a moment and, and therefore it's an ultimate truth. It's a, it's a real thing. Whereas Sautrantikas are saying it, it's, constant, it's immediately abiding, uh, disintegrating, I don't know. It's hard to figure out, you know, how causation works when you look at it very closely, right? It, um, the first is a mental function that might be translated as reflexive awareness in Sanskrit, swasamvedana. They argue that for each moment of direct perception, there's another consciousness that takes that direct perception as its object. So when you're looking at a flower, you're aware that you're looking at a flower as opposed to simply being aware of the flower, you have this other awareness that's aware that you're seeing a flower. Does that make sense? Um, the first, let's see, they argue, no, sorry, I did that. That other consciousness, reflexive awareness, is not a form of thought but is itself a form of direct perception. So direct perception is not thought, by the way, right? Thought is non-direct perception, non-mental uh, activity that's not direct perception. Sautrantrik argues that without such reflexive awareness, the subjective element of memory 
remembering how one felt when perceiving something with the senses would not be possible. Like, do you, do you remember something happening to you and you not only remember the external scene, but you remember you being there, experiencing it, right? But how did they avoid infinite regress in this? Well, they say it's just only one. <laughs> but if they also say that these things are direct perceptions. They say this one doesn't need any any further awareness of itself. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, right. Just... Um, this form of direct perception upheld by Sautrantik and Chittamatra rejected by Vaibhashika and some proponents of Madhyamaka. Madhyamaka would be the subject of contentious debate among the Buddhist philosophical schools. Also in the realm of epistemology is what is called the aspect, the akara. While Vaibhashikas argue that a sense consciousness directly perceives its object in an unmediated manner. Sautrantika and Chichamatra would argue that consciousness, which is immaterial, cannot directly perceive something that is material. Thus, although sense perception can be said to perceive its object, what it's actually perceiving is the aspect of that object, a kind of image that is cast by the object and perceived by the sense consciousness. So they say that a consciousness cannot perceive gross matter which are phenomena other than the subtle sense basis that resides in the sense organ, right? So the outer, so-called outer object casts an akara, an aspect into the visual um, sense uh, faculty that resides in the eyeball and consciousness Sense, I sense consciousness is able to perceive directly that subtle aspect, the, that aspect that takes shape in the subtle matter of the sense faculty. So the, the logic of consciousness can't perceive matter sort of gets a little fuzzy because they then say, in the next sentence, they say, well, consciousness perceives the aspect in the subtle matter of the eye faculty, thereby consciousness is perceiving matter. But they don't really seem bothered by that, which is something that people do a lot when they put forward philosophies. They put forward things that are illogical and it doesn't bother them. Well, just, at a certain point, since you cannot explain any of this stuff, they just get exhausted and run out of, you know, further. They go get drunk. It's like you have to give up at some point because there's always some kind of a, a you know. It's like thing. Matt Gates upseating Kevin McCarthy. Oh my God, the irony of that is just like mind-boggling. Kevin McCarthy must be dying.
Sorry. But he's decided um, not to run again. For sure. So Trautica, uh, let's see. Where the hell am I? Uh, thus, although sense perception can be said to perceive its object, what it is actually perceiving is the aspect of that object, a kind of image that is cast by the object and perceived by the sense consciousness. Thus, when an eye consciousness sees a patch of blue cloth, what it is seen is the aspect of that blue cloth, like looking at an object under a piece, clear piece of crystal. The topic of aspect is only briefly discussed in this chapter. It is discussed more extensively in the next chapter on Chittimatra, where various schools, including one called the half exists, disagreed on how veridical the aspect of the object really is. Despite their agreement on many points, Satrantika Chittimatra was also disagree on this, as is clear from the title of the Satrantika text, proof of external objects. <laughs> subtle, subtle, very subtle. Is that one translated? No, that that would be cool to that see that one. That would be fun to read, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. But Chitta Matra, also known as Yogachar and Vijnapti Matra, followed by Madhyamaka, we move to the two Mahayana schools of Buddhist philosophy, so-called because, Unlike the other schools, they accept the Mahayana Sutras, the word of the Buddha, and use those sutras as the textual sources for their defining doctrines. Mainstream schools deny that the Buddha taught the Mahayana Sutras. Thus, one of the concerns of them was to argue that he did, and they're obsessed with this. They keep doing this endlessly. The fact that these arguments can be found in the works of Mahayana authors over the course of almost a millennium, and they suggest that the authenticity of these sutras remained an ongoing point of contention because both would spread beyond Indian ways that the mainstream schools did not. They achieved particular fame with their texts widely read. Uh, their founders, the Sangha Nagarjuna, among the best-known figures in the history of Buddhism, and their signature doctrines, including emptiness, mind only, and the foundation consciousness, the subject of endless commentary. Indeed, as we read in this chapter, a Sangha so revered in Tibet, where Madhyamaka reigns, that some some there argued that although a Sangha taught Chichamacha, his personal philosophy was that of Madhyamaka. Isn't that cool? Like, uh, it's sort of like the way that we understand Yogacara as being different from Chichamacha. Like interpreting a, a Sangha's teachings as different than they were interpreted by his, his uh, successors. There are hundreds of Mahana Sutras, and they say very different things, meaning that the Chittamatra Madhyamaka authors use them selectively to support their philosophical positions. Perfection of Wisdom Sutras with a repeated rendition of emptiness for the main source for Nagarjuna and his followers. There are many sutra sources for Chittamatra, including the passage cited above, cited at the beginning of the chapter. These three realms are mind only. However, as the chapter notes, one Mahana Sutra was foundational for a song and his followers. The explanation of the intention here, the Buddha explains among many pivotal topics that when he said that everything was empty, he did not mean it literally, but intended something different. The chapter identifies the Sangha as the founder of Chittamana, goes on to list his many important works, as well as those of his half-brother Vasubhana, seems to have converted from the Hinayana Sautrantika to the Mahayana Chittamana at some point in his life, going on to compose several of the foundational works of the school. 
Among the Sangha's works, the chapter identifies this compendium on the Mahayana as a particularly important source of Chittamatra philosophy. It's just a text that we should read through someday. It's really uh, quite an important text. And uh, our, one of our gurus, Carl Brunholzl, dedicated a lot of his time to um, translating many commentaries on that text, putting out a two-volume set in his usual uh, tome manner. Uh, let's see, Song was also author of a number of other works, such as the Bodhisattva Levels, that would provide much of the vocabulary and categories of the Mahayana path to Buddhahood for both the Chittamatra and Madhyamaka schools, because the present volume is devoted only to philosophy. These works are not discussed here. Uh, turning to its names, because the school denies the existence of external objects, it's called Chittamatra Mind only, because the doctrines of the school derive in part from the subjective experience of its meditators called Yogacara practitioners of yoga, practice of yoga. Two different divisions are described. The first is Chittamatra following scripture and Chittamatra following reason with the, uh, sorry, reasoning with the former, including Asanga and Vasubandhu, and arguing that there are eight forms of consciousness and the latter asserting that there are the usual six. The second division is divided into um, true aspectarians and false aspectarians div um, divided on the question of the extent to which the aspect that appears to the sense senses is veridical. Veridical, what is the fancy word for true? Before this long chapter moves to a detailed description of the tenets of the Chittamatra school, its three major positions are listed. First, is that unlike the other Buddhist schools, it denies the existence of material objects, whether they compose of bartless particles, which some schools assert or not. Second, these objects, those objects that appear to be external to the consciousness that perceive them are in fact not. They're like things seen in a dream entirely of the nature of consciousness. Third, the consciousness that has transcended duality and that it understands subject and object as the same entity is said to exist ultimately. That's their way of presenting Chittamatra as being an affirmation of the mind that is beyond duality. Among the topics central to Chittamatra first to be centered here is the three natures, the imaginary, dependent, and consummate. The imaginary is described in two ways, one related to sense experience, the other related to thought. Chittamatra concedes that ordinary sense experience is dualistic with subject, object and subject. They do not deny that there is object and subject, but they assert as false and hence imaginary, the experience of the object is something that is distinct, sorry, distant and cut off from the consciousness that cognizes it. In the realm of thought, they note that objects appear to thought as naturally being the basis of their names. That, that other way of describing what Lopez said, independent of uh, language or dependent on language, when in fact naming is entirely adventitious. Thus, external objects that are different in entity from the consciousness that perceives them and objects that are naturally the basis of their names are called imaginary natures. They are false appearances that in fact have no referent in the external world. Um, ref the reference usually is used uh, with words. 
uh, a world that does not exist, have no referent in the external world. The dependent nature is that which is produced by causes and conditions, as stated. This seems simple as simple enough. It's something that would be accepted by all Buddhist schools with their emphasis on causation and impermanence. However, in Chittamatra, where external objects do not exist, the dependent nature is essentially consciousness and what appears to consciousness. Chittamatra does not deny that objects appear to consciousness. It asserts that those objects themselves are the nature of consciousness, called dependent because it depends on a number of causing conditions, including past karma or in the language of this school, predispositions, vasana, very important term. Uh, as discussed below, these predispositions are like seeds that bear the fruit of experience with a single seed simultaneously producing both the perceiving conscious and the perceived subject. Predisposition uh, producing the both axes of experience. The third nature is the consummate. This is the ultimate reality for Chittamatra, like the like the ultimate reality of Madhyamaka, the ultimate reality in Chittamatra is a form of emptiness. Uh, as it says in the sutra, unraveling the thought or whatever they call it here. The uh, three natures are the three are the emptiness of the three natures, the, the three emptinesses. Um, here, however, it is not the emptiness of intrinsic nature. It is the emptiness of the duality of subject and object, i.e. emptiness of intrinsic nature is what the Madhyamakas focus on. Um, it's the emptiness of the duality of subject object, more precisely of subject and object being different substantial entities. The relation of the three natures sometimes described in this way, the absence of the imaginary in the dependent is the consummate. Um, or, as gloss in this chapter, the consummate is the reality that is the emptiness of the object of negation, the imaginary, and the basis that is empty, the dependent. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. Although the category of the two truths, conventional and ultimate, is less prominent in Chittamatra than in other schools, they assert that the imaginary and the dependent are conventional truths, and the consummate is the ultimate truth. The chapter turns next to the most famous of the Chittamatra doctrines, the foundation consciousness, the Aliyah Vijnana, evocatively rendered in Tibetan as the consciousness that is the foundation of all. So the, these uh, concepts of uh, views of the Chittamatra are very co uh, complicated and subtle. And it's helpful to go through them a number of times to gain insight into how they're meant to be understood. And let's see, uh, before turning directly to the topic, the chapter provides an interesting survey of Buddhist views on the number of consciousnesses ranging from one to nine. Those who assert that there is only one Consciousness say that it moves from sense organ to sense organ moment by moment, like a single monkey running from one window of a house to another. Most Buddhist schools say there are six, one for each of the five sense faculties, plus the mental consciousness, Sangha and his brothers. The chapter often refers to the Sangha Bodhi and Vasubana. 
said that there are eight, the usual six, plus the foundation consciousness and something called the afflicted mental consciousness, the klishta mana. Discussed below, the proponents of nine add something called the unstained mind, the amala vishnana. Foundation consciousness serves as the depository and repository for the predispositions or seeds that are created by former deeds, remaining there for an unspecified period of time, or, or uh, remaining there for an unspecified, like remaining there for whatever period of time, and then fructifying, <laughs> what an odd term, fructifying, is that like what fruit does? As experience, producing both the um, subject and the object is noted above the foundation consciousness, the passive and neutral observer, all of, have all of this, as well as the manifestation of the fructification. Um, as we read, the definition of the foundation consciousness is the primary mental consciousness, which is very stable, serves as the basis for infusing the predispositions, um, and observes any of the three, the sense, faculty, object, or predisposition. Its aspect is unobstructed and neutral, although both the sense, faculty, and the object appear to it. It does not ascertain them. It's strange language, you know, not to have pointed out that all of these are the Aliyavijnana. The, uh, the, the predispositions are the Aliyavijnana, the sense faculties, the Aliyavijnana, the object, and, uh, and so forth are all the Aliyavijnana. Anyway, the chapter provides eight different reasons for the existence of the foundation consciousness. The first of these acknowledges the perennial challenge that Buddhist philosophical schools faced in upholding the doctrine of rebirth while denying the existence of self. Another very important foundational aspect of the tenets of the schools is like, how do you account for rebirth and karmic, the impact of karma over a series of moments when there is no self. And um, in general, if a consciousness is the kind that takes rebirth, it cannot be the kind that sometimes exists in one's continuum and sometimes does not. It must have all the qualities, such as operating uninterruptedly from the moment of conception until death. Because the six collections of consciousness do not have all of those qualities, they are not suitable to take rebirth. The foundation consciousness has all of those qualities. So it provides the continuum for the activity of karma and for the uh, mode of operation of rebirth from one life to another. Having described the foundation, the predispositions, the chapter turns to a detailed discussion of the seeds themselves, their types, how they're deposited, how and when they fructify and so forth. Among the several challenges for a school that denies the existence of an external world is the presence of shared experience. Why is it we all see the same shit? However, here we learn that one of the types of seeds are shared seeds, which fructify to produce sensory experience of the environment. <laughs> we all share the same environmental seeds. 
the afflicted mental consciousness observes the foundation consciousness and mistakenly perceives it to be a permanent self. It is, it is defined in the chapter as a mind that views the foundation consciousness abiding in the same continuum, constantly apprehending and thinking I and mine. Like the section on the foundation consciousness, this section presents a number of arguments for the existence of the afflicted mental consciousness. For example, were there no afflicted mental consciousness, there would be no conception of personal agency for actions whether good or bad. For example, in all virtuous thoughts such as I will cultivate love and kindness, non-virtuous thoughts such as I will commit murder, and neutral thoughts such as I couldn't care less, it is known through experience that the conception of I is present. With the presentation of the eight types of consciousness complete, the chapter turns to the various proofs of mind that only occur, only of mind only, sorry, that occur in a whole range of sutras and treatises. Rather than presenting sustained arguments, this section provides a series of passages from various texts, each followed by a gloss of how it is proving mind only. Scriptural support set of logical support. Of special interest here is the demonstration through quotation that both the Naga and Dharmakirti did not assert the existence of a foundation consciousness, nonetheless argue that external objects do not exist. This is followed by a section setting forth the positions of the true aspectarians and the false aspectarians, as well as those of their various sub-schools. For example, for the true aspectarians, there are three the proponents of an equal number of subjects and objects, the half agists and the non-pluralists, each of whom has a different opinion on the nature of sense experience. The chapter concludes with a discussion. I haven't turned my calendar yet. It's October. Yes. October 31st, Halloween is a Tuesday. So on Halloween this year, you can dress up as um, a half-agist, or a proponent of the equal number of subjects and objects, or non-pluralists, or a true aspectarian. Very popular costumes you can get online or at any store near you. Um, the chapter concludes the discussion of valid knowledge, coordination, and modification, like proponents of other Buddhist schools. There are the two, direct perception inference, to which they seem to add a third, scriptural valid knowledge. Uh, the last is an important topic unto itself, not pursued in the chapter on how the words of the Buddha serve as a source of valid knowledge. An important question that the chapter does address is this. Since direct perception is the source of valid knowledge, as D&D &D, famously argue, how can they do so if they are in fact proponents of Chittamatra and therefore hold that all sense experience is mistaken because it perceives external objects that do not exist? How can, in the world of mind only, how can direct perception have, have any validity? That's a really good one, right? You know, why, what's the big deal with direct perception? as being valid knowing if it's validly knowing something that doesn't exist that is only in the mind that's a really good question is it possible that they're using a different a definition of direct perception that is within the little egg of um of non-dual mind it is certainly possible that they're talking about the half dome yeah um or the sphere. The sphere was unveiled in Las Vegas, right? Did you see the pictures of that? No? 
Okay. Um, uh, let's see. How can direct perception be undeceived? That is, is it is commonly defined. It would seem that a different definition, as Cynthia is saying, is required, and this indeed is the case. We read, because of this important point in Dharmakirti's ascertainment of valid knowledge, the definition of direct perception is posited as awareness that is free from thought and that arises based on predispositions. Which sort of opens the door to uh, you know stereotypes and things like that right I don't know it's that's a little that's sort of odd anyway given that it's 922 let's pause at this point and uh, not, we'll go through the Madhyamaka section on a different day which is uh, it's a number of pages so I failed this evening to go through all the reading. It's about eight pages, nine pages. And uh, it may make sense to delay and go through that later. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll go through it next week. How's that? Any uh, comments, questions, suggestions, reactions? Is there going to be a, a day off? because of your um, Toku visit? Mm. October 24th, we have Ringo Toku at the, hosted by the Westchester Meditation Center, speaking in person at the Alliance Center. I hope you'll all come up for it. If you come from New York City, you get free admission, okay? Are there, is there actually space? I know it said it was limited. Uh, space is always limited. <laughs> space is unlimited. Uh, form is limited. That, that's odd. How can space be limited? What a false statement. That's on our website. We did say that, didn't we? You, you, could, you could modify it to say the space within the room limited <laughs> and then it would it's, not contradict the vast yeah yeah that's better it's limited by what walls by the room <laughs> it's limited by the room people would have a good laugh if you said that right <laughs> space Eric, within the room is, yes ma'am will it, it will it be also online or just in person it will be posted online after the event, but the, yeah. uh, you know, to, to be able to provide a live stream of it okay. uh, is beyond our meager capabilities, unless you know anybody who's expert at that who wants to come do it. Speak now or forever hold your peace until the no, next time. Hard, hard to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I hope you will come up for that. And uh, shall we conclude with our dedicated, dedicatory chanting? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. Ascension beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
did I resynchronize okay with you when I skipped those words? Did I come back in in the right place? All right. <laughs> so we go through the different tenets like multiple times through the introduction, and then we'll do them at, uh, at length when we go through the chapters. And uh, we had we had some reading by Mipoms, which will uh, which we'll touch on next week as well. We'll we'll finish up what we didn't go through today, which was very it was uh, short but sweet. Thank you, everyone. Great to see you. Have a good evening. Thanks.